Hello and welcome back to Wisconsin Law in Action, a podcast where we discuss new and forthcoming scholarship with University of Wisconsin Law School professors. I'm your host, Chris Turner, and my guest today is Professor Tanya Brito. Thank you for joining the podcast today, Professor Brito. Thank you for having me. Oh, it was my pleasure. Professor Brito is here today to discuss the Child Support Debt Bubble, published in the UC Irvine Law Review in 2019. To get started, why don't we just jump right into the article. Okay. Can you give us some context for the child support laws in the U.S. that have, at least in part, led to the development of this debt bubble? Sure, I'd be happy to talk about that. Um, the child support um, system and the regulations have been um, reformed in a series of uh, legislative enactments in the 70s, 80s, and 90s in order to strengthen child support enforcement and collections. And they've been very, very effective, um, particularly for families where there is a non-custodial parent who has a regular job and regular earnings. Those individuals are really um, uh, not as able to avoid paying child support. There are uh, systems of wage garnishment, for example, that work quite uh, effectively. But there's this segment of the population who are in the child support system, roughly 25%, that are very low income, sometimes no income. And for them, um, it's very difficult to collect support, and efforts to collect support can be quite punitive. And um, as a result, they can actually accrue large debts that they can't pay off. Mm-hmm. Right, see, like with arrears and with you can't discharge this kind of support, and even in bankruptcy, believe, exactly. Correct, that's right? exactly. So that yeah. just, just it stays with you until it stays it's with you. Off, right? That's exactly right. Um, so for this paper in particular, you're examining the heavy burden that support debt places on low and no income non-custodial fathers in particular. <laughs> what are some of the real-world effects that this debt has had on their lives? Well, um, as part of the study, I did interviews with some of these dads um, uh, in two different states. Uh, 40, I'm sorry, 20 in each state, so 40 altogether. And in talking with them, um, they shared a a sense of um, sometimes disconnection from the children who are the subject of the orders, uh, feeling like, um, well, I owe this debt, and a reluctance sometimes to show up because they feel like they haven't done enough. So they end up uh, kind of, uh, like, it sort of wears on them. um, And uh, they, it's not as if they were, unwilling to provide for their children. Economically, it's just very difficult for them to do it at the rates that they were being expected to. Um, So sometimes you would see um, some um, uh, withdrawal, but also um, on the mother's side, sometimes some uh, anger and frustration because they're being told, this is how much you're entitled to, um, and they weren't getting that. Mm -hmm. And so they would sometimes be upset with the fathers and sometimes even making it more difficult for them to spend time with the children. So it can interfere with their home lives in that respect. Um, Also, they had uh, a certain amount of fear of child support, fear of the child support office, fear of going to court, fear of being incarcerated, and, um, and that could sometimes make it less likely they might show up in court and that by itself can be uh, a huge disadvantage because things will happen in court even when you're not there. Right. They, you don't show up, then they're going to go against you in most cases where exactly. you're absentee. They're like, well, okay, this is just that we have to make the ruling we're not hearing from that side, so this is all we have in front of us. Exactly. Exactly. They're not presenting their side of the story. Mm-hmm. You use the word dis- disconnect between the fathers and the children sometimes. Mm-hmm. I think that sounds like a really 
harsh condition that happens to these fathers because you're driving almost a wedge into the family when this arrears shows I know. Up. It's, it's, a, it's a very unfortunate because one of the purposes of child support is to address the needs of these children and to get them the economic support they need from their fathers. And then pursuing it, particularly in an aggressive way that doesn't really take account of their economic circumstances, it affects the sort of emotional or more nurturing aspect of those relationships. Right. And trying, you're trying to bring up the financial part of the family, but in that way you're kind of almost hurting or affecting the emotional yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, some people have criticized this focus of child support, which is predominantly looking at the contribution that is monetary and um, not recognizing that fathers have more to provide for their children than just money. And when you're looking at very low-income dads, maybe we should be actually be emphasizing more the emotional uh, contributions and support that they can provide. Right, the being there, the presence exactly. in, in the child, child's life. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's, I, that's, I had not thought of that aspect before yeah. reading the paper. That's yeah. really, it's obvious to me in hindsight. But in, Yes, you know, but it's, um, it was a, a current underneath everything I looked at. I started the project looking at child support, but every case I, I dealt with when I talked with the dads, there was this other issue. And some of them had separate litigation trying to get access to their children um, and that they had to do on their own mm-hmm. as pro se litigants um, without a state infrastructure designed to bring those families together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the, You also talked about how sometimes in the fear of appearing in court or fear of incarceration, I think that speaks to the larger issue with people who just get concerned or worried and because of that things pile up against them and this is a very stark example of yes, that. Yes, yes, definitely, definitely. In our study we did not see a lot of people actually Um, spending time in jail. We would hear anecdotally, um, particularly talking to child support attorneys, because we did over 140 interviews with lawyers and judges and et cetera, um, who are involved in child support proceedings, and they would say, oh, such and such county, they they put a lot of people in jail. But there has been, to a degree over time, kind of a pullback from actually incarcerating dads, but there's a lot of threatening of jail and a lot of hearings. And, um, and then some dads do actually go to jail because of child support non-payment, um, but uh, it's the, this paper really focuses on whether or not they go to jail. There is this enormous accumulation of debt. Right. There's still something that is affecting their lives in a very real way. Exactly. So there was one case where the person, the father was in jail, the mm-hmm. Henderson v. Davis case that yes. you talk about in the paper. Uh, that one really, for me, vividly, vividly illustrated how incarceration and child support debt affect and interact with each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, what were the most important takeaways that you had from that observation of that case? Um, it was it was very emotional to watch that hearing in court. Um, as part of the project, we were in court uh, taking detailed field notes, observing cases to really get a sense on the ground of how these rules are operating. Um, in that particular case, um, the dad was incarcerated on unrelated action, so he wasn't in jail for child support itself, um, but he had filed his own pro se motion asking the court to uh, suspend his child support obligation while he was incarcerated, and then it would resume when he got out. And the court denied that request. Um, what was interesting is a lot of dads um, don't actually file the motion to request a modification. So he was actually unusual in pulling it together. Now he had had another case because he had older children and in that case he succeeded in getting a modification. So one of the takeaways is somewhat the inconsistency in the application of the law. It's the same dad, he's in jail again, and he's trying to suspend the child support and, um, and he's getting different outcomes, right? Um, another takeaway is, you know, the case really reflects sort of a fundamental, I think, tension um, in this area of law. On the one hand, the economic reality is 
someone in jail earning, you know, pennies on the dollar, even if they have a job in jail, is not in a position to pay the existing child support order, which is premised on wages you would earn in the labor market, you know, out of jail. Um, and so the order is necessarily, you know, going to be, um, there's necessarily going to be a lack of compliance with paying the order while in jail. And that's going to accrue. And that's going to make it harder when they get out to move on with their lives and reintegrate into society, etc. So there's that. But on the other hand, there is this just widespread belief, maybe it's a philosophy, a political ideology, about fathers should pay for the children they have. And if you bring a child into this world, you're responsible. And, um, and so there's a desire to kind of send a message. You shouldn't benefit from being in jail. And mom needs the money. No one's arguing whether or not mom needs. Mom needs the money because the moms are often, you know, comparably economically disadvantaged. You know, these poor men aren't having children with wealthy women for the most part. They're having children with women who are in their communities. Um, you know, one of the problems is we simply don't have enough child uh, uh, social welfare for poor families. And so these families become almost pit against each other. Mom needs the money. Who's going to be responsible? Dad's going to be responsible. So put a child support order on him and uh, ignore, to some degree, the economic reality that he's in jail and he can't pay this child support order. That doesn't give mom any more money. Mm -hmm. Mom still has no money. Mm -hmm. So, right, You have a judgment in hand that does not give you the put the money in the wall. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. You had mentioned inconsistencies between uh, the cases that you had seen. What do you think leads to some of those inconsistencies? Um, sometimes it is, you know, we, we, we did see mostly dads self-representing. Um, and in this hearing, we we're just talking about the dad who was in prison was surprisingly capable of, you know, putting this motion together, appearing, he appeared by phone from prison, he stated his case, you know, um, he was unsuccessful, um, but he laid out the relevant information upon which the commissioner could make a decision. Um, many dads are at a real disadvantage in doing even that, and that can contribute to different outcomes. Um, there is also um, some, uh, there's a lot of discretion in these cases. You know, we have a set of legal rules that give the decision makers um, a lot of wiggle room. And so generally we would say that's a good thing. They can make decisions on a case-by-case -case basis depending on the unique circumstances of any family that appears in court, but that can contribute to um, very divergent outcomes mm -hmm. in these cases. Right. Kind of, that kind of sounds like the criminal where they have the recommended... Uh, exactly. And sometimes they'll say, you know, they, they commit this crime so they're within this realm of mm -hmm. the years that they were incarcerated, but sometimes they go off that or yes. they, and the discretion plays a big yeah. part in that. So same idea here. Yeah, very yeah. Interesting. There's some, a lot of similarities between what we're seeing in child support and criminal justice, even though these are civil cases, mm -hmm. because of that threat of incarceration. Mm -hmm. And because, you know, a sizable portion of these very low-income men have had experience in the criminal justice system. Um, and uh, the ongoing court hearings designed to uh, monitor their efforts to find a job and their payments, uh, you know, resemble to some degree, you know, kind of a probationary system. So, Right. right. And along those lines, my next question actually rolls right into that. So mm -hmm. thank you for the nice transition. So what impact, so they have a judgment the clock starts ticking on the judgment, the mm -hmm. support that they owe. So now they are probably going to fall into arrears in many cases. Mm -hmm. So what uh, impact do these, the interest and in the arrears have on this rapid growth of child support debt? Um, a lot of the impacts are um, uh, damaging. 
So some dads end up in the cash wage market. Mm-hmm. Um, they go underground um, because that's the only way they can earn money to meet their own subsistence level without it being uh, taken away from them by the state. And then um, that money may not get to the mom, right? So there's that phenomenon that is n- not necessarily a good thing for anyone. Um, an- another uh, problem in this area is that, um, you know, I mentioned before the relationship with the children can be a difficulty. You know, also we're just spending a lot of resources in our child support system overseeing these cases. And in court, hours and hours, you know, some of the courts we observed in, you know, the, there would be a, 50 cases on the calendar for the day. Wow. And, um, you know, all the lawyers coming to court representing the state, the judges, the family court commissioners. It's not as if we're seeing, over time, better payments. We're not seeing better payments. We're seeing actually an increase in the overall debt in the United States and at the state level and in the individual family level. So the system is just not working. Um, And although there have been just dozens of studies about these cases, often, you know, pointing out that the alarm, that the amount of debt that's owed is alarming and that it's uncollectible, um, and often recommendations are made for what to do, but they're not necessarily adopted. Um, And so, because they might not be politically uh, sellable. Right. It sounds like it'd be trying to turn an enormous freighter. In a way. It takes a long time to turn away from a different Exactly. And indeed, at the federal level, during the Obama administration, there were efforts um, to shift away from, you know, setting child support orders at the amount that one might think a dad should pay to an amount that reflects their actual ability to pay. Mm -hmm. And those two numbers might look very different in an individual case. And that's where it may be politically uh, inflammatory Exactly. suggest something like that. Say, well, this person owes this much, but really they can't pay, so therefore we can give them a break. And people will say, well, are you kidding me? They owe this much. Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of sympathy for dads who don't pay child support. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not as if there's, uh, no one's campaigning for president on, I want to help poor men who don't pay child support. It's the poor moms with kids that are, and I, and I have a lot of empathy as myself uh, for poor moms who have children and they're not getting the support they need. Mm-hmm. The difficulty is we've set up a system where we're predominantly looking to the dad to pay. Mm-hmm. And and it's not, it's not working the way it's set up right now. Right. I think that the dads and the moms and everybody involved here wants the mom to get the support and exactly. wants the kids to be supported. But the question is, is the current system the correct way to get that support exactly. to the mom. Yeah. And the studies kind of pointing away from that a little it bit. It is, it is. And we've moved politically away from um, an idea of just, you know, basic cash assistance to, um, you know, less assistance with lots of conditions attached. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, it, you know, sometimes people are surprised when they learn that um, Richard Nixon, of all people, had proposed what was called, I think, a child support assurance plan, which is basically uh, a cash payment to families who have children. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that point in time, you know, we've we've our, our political system has shifted over time. Um, that was actually proposed by a Republican president. Mm-hmm. Even today, it would be hard for a Democrat to propose that. Right. It's fast, fascinating uh, yeah. examination of how the politics have shifted about this kind of stuff. Exactly. But beyond the purview of this podcast. Exactly. So. <laughs> So instead, I will ask the next question. Uh, after conducting your analysis and gathering the data, were there any surprises that you encountered during the research process? And tell me a little bit more about the research process in sure. general. Um, so in this project, we wanted to uh, look at these child support cases 
Um, and initially the focus is, and primarily it is on the ability of unrepresented litigants to navigate uh, the family court system. Um, and we looked in two jurisdictions, one where um, people who owe support and are facing civil incarceration have a right to counsel, and another one where they don't, to get a sense for how having a lawyer might uh, make a difference in these cases. Um, and so part of the project was a court-based ethnography, which means that the researchers are in court observing cases, taking detailed field notes. And another part of the study was doing interviews with all of the relevant actors, lawyers, judges, litigants, um, and others who are involved, like uh, people who run um, different kinds of legal assistance uh, programs mm -hmm. in the jurisdictions. Um, and then another part of the program was just like, getting all the relevant records, court case records, uh, for the cases that we observed. Um, and, uh, you know, I guess one surprise was, although these are cases, I mean, we're looking at public proceedings and um, as lawyers and people in the legal system, uh, I think in some ways we take sort of pride in the idea that these are uh, public, or that the legal system is transparent and the public has access to them. And the idea of accountability by the judiciary is sort of embedded in our idea of uh, the legitimacy of the court system. Mm -hmm. Um, but the reality is on the ground, getting access to the relevant information uh, requires some, um, uh, I guess, perseverance and negotiation and developing relationships on the ground. Um, you know, these are cases where often um, there is no stenographer in court, so it's not possible to get, even when you have the research funding, uh, a court transcript of the proceedings, so you need to be in court observing and taking notes. Um, these are cases also where the litigants, because they're unrepresented, um, and there's often an oral ruling by the court during at the end of the hearing, um, and it might be a notation on the civil docket sheet, but you don't get like a 10-page written opinion like you do, let's say, in a court of appeals or a Supreme Court decision laying out what the issue is and what the rationale is and what the relevant law is. So we don't, we're not building up let's say, a jurisprudence of child support that guides other courts going forward. Um, and so um, there's a way in which there's a parallel system in our court system for people who have resources and attorneys, and they get rulings that are written and explanatory. And then there's this other layer of cases for poor people um, where they're not represented, and they get rulings from the bench, and there is a very scant judicial record of the proceedings, um, and there's not a lot of accountability because they're not appealing their cases, so you don't have review by a court of appeals that's evaluating what took place at the trial court level. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's really important, I think, for uh, people who are studying the legal system to focus on these cases that are really under the radar. Mm -hmm. Speaking from the librarian point of view along these same lines, we get a lot of researchers who are saying, I'd like to do the trial court research. And mm -hmm. I'll say, okay, let's take a deep breath because this <laughs> is going to take some work here. Because yeah. people are so used now, you, you're using Lexis and Westlaw, but you're finding, as you mentioned, the, the appeals, the mm -hmm. appeal courts, and higher than that. And you're not finding these trial level ones that have very scant information about them. So I applaud you for doing this kind of work because it's very important and it's really hard to dig up. And it perseverance is. is a nice and correct way of saying that. And it's costly needed. too. It's so costly. I mean, it's it's a big chunk of the time of the researchers in the two states we gathered data in. We had to travel to them, to the locations that we were going to. So that takes time away and, and it's difficult to carve that out. But also the, the cost of getting access to the documents. Um, although we were fortunate that courts we worked with 
um, they let us have access. They didn't charge us per page, oh, which many courts do if you're just a member of the public. But we had to scan the documents mm -hmm. and make our own um, uh, electronic versions. So I had a lot of students working for me to help with that data collection effort. And I got grants from the National Science Foundation and uh, support from the law school and the university um, over a period of years. Mm -hmm. You know, And so it is, um, it is not an easy undertaking. Mm -hmm. Uh, and undertaking, and and it's very, um, uh, it, it just it just consumes a lot of research funding, and so. Um, you take I, away that funding, and you're someone that just wants to know more about your case. Maybe you're like, oh, I want to see about my daughter's case that she had against her yes. father of her children or something, and it just becomes much more of a headache. And it does costly and exactly. time consuming. It's, yes. Uh, access to justice, as we've discussed before we started the podcast, uh -huh. is something that. You see something at this level, you're like, this is this should be open and transparent, but it's not always the case. That's true. That's definitely true. And we our civil system isn't set up quite the same way as this, the criminal system. Um, and on the criminal side, uh, getting access to sort of basic data about cases, there are infrastructures available for researchers. And on the civil side, that's just not the case. Mm -hmm. um, and so there are groups, including uh, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, has a project looking at civil access to justice issues. And one component of it is the data access part, working on identifying, you know, what kind of data do researchers need, and also developing what they call a memo of understanding that could be used to negotiate access and how the data would be used to address the illegitimate concerns of the court system mm -hmm. um, in terms of how that data would be used. Right. That's great. I, I'm glad to hear that that is going on because that's very important mm -hmm. work that's being done. Both sides need to come to an understanding yes, on that. So yes. That's wonderful. Uh, let's shift back a little bit back to the article here. Sure. So policy-wise, what are some of the ways that these enormous debts that people have can be challenged or changed, especially for the unable non-payers that you looked at? Sure. Um, that's a really good question. I mean, there have been some changes um, during the Obama administration, some regulations put into effect uh, to address this. They could use more teeth um, because they do still allow for a lot of discretion. They don't have a lot of categorical rules, like you can't do this under these circumstances. Um, um, there have been efforts at the local level, uh, and sometimes they're like pilot projects, to grant amnesty or forgiveness of debts. And often they have a set of conditions that the uh, payor or the debtor has to comply with, like paying a certain portion over a certain period of time, and then larger percentages of the debt will be forgiven. Um, they're not wide scale yet, but they're an acknowledgement that this is problematic and needs to be addressed. Um, they come a little bit too late, though. You know, it's like uh, a system creates debts that are questionable and then forgives it. You know, it's, it's suggesting that 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 person was in the in the wrong or is at fault, um, and that that framing of it, uh, I have some hesitation about as as the best way to address those problem. I think it really needs to be addressed at the front end, um, in terms of setting orders that are realistic. But the problem is bigger than child support. The problem is you know, poverty. It the problem is our low wage job market. Um, the problem is not enough social welfare services for poor families. And until those things are addressed this problem is going to persist. I'm sure, of course. What do you hope readers and researchers take away from your article? Um, I guess one thing is uh, sort of question the narrative about poor families. There's a very strong deadbeat dad narrative in the United States, and we sometimes even see these help wanted, pro um, not help wanted, I'm sorry, 
in the in the post office most wanted like felon kind of things how much this person knows how much that person knows but the case i profile in the article sort of illustrates that um, there are a lot of contributing factors like exorbitant interest rates that can quickly make the debt spiral into just fantastical amounts that make it seem like it's a you know a one percenter who's not paying child support when really it's someone who themselves is impoverished mm-hmm. yeah again what i I kind of subscribed to the deadbeat dad uh, yeah. notion before reading the article, and this kind of helped me f- kind of flesh out the full, more full picture. So mm-hmm. thank you again. I oh, really, sure. really enjoyed the article. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. Sure. Thank you. Uh, uh, where can people find out more about your work? Well, um, the law school has uh, web pages for all the faculty with links to where our scholarly work is available. Um, we have a repository um, of articles that is maintained by our library. Um, and great also, library. It oh, is. I mean. It's an excellent library. <laughs> and, um, and we also have a uh, links on that page to our um, what's called SSRN pages, where our work is also available. So those are two places to look. Great. Excellent. And of course, we'll be linking to Professor Brito's scholarship on our podcast page as well. Professor Brito, thank you again for sitting down and discussing your paper with me today. It was an eye-opening look at a problem that disproportionately affects low-income and minority families. Again, that paper is called The Child Support Debt Bubble, published in the UC Irvine Law Review in 2019. As always, thanks to everyone out there for listening and subscribing to the Wisconsin Law in Action podcast. Professor Brito's scholarship can be found on her SSRN page and in the University of Wisconsin Law School repository. As I mentioned earlier, links to Professor Brito's scholarship is posted along with this podcast at wilawinaction.law.wisc.edu. You can subscribe to the Wisconsin Law in Action podcast on the Apple iTunes Store, Stitcher, or Google Play, or find our full archive at wilawinaction.law.wisc.edu. Thank you again for listening, and join us next time as Professor Richard Monette joins me to talk about his work with tribal governments and obtaining grants, reclaiming sovereignty, and working to strike a balance between the federal, state, and tribal governments. See you then, and happy research.